Thinnerdalogs is a Chicago-based sketch group that writes comedy grounded in shared true, personal stories about our existence as lifelong nerds. We started your stories to give everyone a chance to do what we do, share their own stories, and foster a more heartfelt, welcoming nerd community. Your Stories is about embracing the weird and obscure in your life and asserting your geekdom with a group that gets your references. And, most importantly, Your Stories is a place to bring people up, not to put anyone down. Hey everybody, my name is Eric Arnault, and this is part two of July's The Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast, featuring the theme Indie. It's appropriate that in a month about independence, a lot of our speakers broke free from the theme, and I should also note that we recorded this episode on Father's Day, so there's a lot in here about, like, families, but also about coming of age, so, you know, it kind of fits. Uh, just enjoy it anyway, because these stories are really good. Today we're featuring Sawyer Heppies, Nate Bechtel, Chris Crotwell, and the Nerdalog's own Andrew Bentley, plus music from myself and Dwight Hassler, as always. So if you like your stories, and you live in Chicago, and you haven't made it out to a recording, well, why not, sir or ma'am? Uh, next Sunday is your chance. Our episode, our next episode, records on July 21st at 7pm, although this time we're leaving behind our usual digs, the Public House Theater, for a one-time-only remote recording at Cat and Mouse Game Store, one of the coolest nerd shops in Chicago uh, that's located at 2212 West Armitage. Uh, as always, the show is free to attend. RSVP to the event on our Facebook page if you want to tell a story and maybe get on the podcast. So that's all I've got to say for today, uh, except to thank you, as always, for listening, and please enjoy the show. So, um, going off Lauren's story, you might say that we recently got the band back together. Dwight and I are, uh, and Claire, are in a, a band called Cover Stories. We're yeah. actually going to be playing out a lot. Cover Stories is my favorite band. <laughs> um, so here's the thing about Cover Stories is we love America a lot. <laughs> and... No. USA! 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 Damn! Yeah. And, uh... Shrimp fried rice! Shrimp fried rice! Shrimp fried rice! Shrimp fried rice! Yeah! Shrimp fried rice! Slow back out, and... So even though we did indie songs earlier, we just had to sing about this wonderful land of ours, so... One, two, three, four... Yeah. 
my favorite movie soundtrack ever and I, I went to buy it the day it came out and the per, it was like at a Suncoast when those still existed and, and the clerk was like I think exactly the audience for the movies that Team America is making fun of because she was like did you see this movie and I'm like yeah and she goes I didn't get why they were all puppets and I'm like exactly exactly um, anyway here's a here's a Here's a real song about freedom.
Thanks, guys. Ready, Mercury! <laughs> sir Heppies, come on up, sir. Uh, I like the sitting vibe. I'm gonna keep that going here. Um, so father-son stuff makes me cry. Uh, movies, TV shows, it does. It's actually very fitting that Claire's was about her father. My dad's nearly not that big of a badass, but still. Um, I remember uh, a couple of instances. One, uh, I was on the couch in college of uh, the girlfriend I was dating at the time, and the uh, Will Smith episode comes on where his father shows up. And because it's a sitcom, you know how it ends, that the father's going to disappear again. And <laughs> I remember bawling. I just remember crying so hard. And it's been relevant in so many other scenes. Uh, uh, Royal Tenenbaums, the Ben Stiller scene. If you guys haven't seen it, I won't spoil it. But when Ben Stiller says, Dad, it's been a rough year. Oh, my God. I felt like I was calling my dad every day for the past, like, prior months. <laughs> and I was like, Dad, what am I doing? And, uh, and the king of all father-son moments to me is Field of Dreams. When... <laughs> Yeah, like the best Kevin Costner performance like you will ever seen is Dad, can we have a catch? And you just hear that little crack in his voice and oh, it gets me every time. And one thing I, I wanted to talk today um, is about an individual who, who does separate himself for me from other people is, is my father. And it struck me uh, when watching Man of Steel on Friday. Um, I'm not going to defend the movie and I'm not going to spoil anything for anyone. Um, and I'm certainly not going to talk about Kryptonian technology because that's <laughs> a hot button in my house. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but uh, when I when they announced that Kevin Costner was playing Pa Kent, I was like, oh my god, that is perfect. Never in a million years for any other role in the entire history or future of movies would I say, Kevin Costner should play that part. <laughs> Because, because I saw Prince of Thieves and it, you know, <laughs> Untouchables is good, but let's be honest. Um, and there was a lot of complaints people had about his take on the character. Like, that's not Paul Kent. That's not the way he acts. That's not how it's supposed to be. That's frustrating. Um, several of them that are prevalent in, in the, the trailer um, that happened in there. One, for me, just backtracking a little bit is the one moment that gave me goosebumps and started to make me tear up the first time I saw that trailer was when Clark Kent asked his father if he can still call him dad. And it was just so weird because none of us could ever possibly wrap our heads around the fact that we were beamed in a rocket ship far away from our planet to never know anyone that will ever be like us, ever. Well, with a few exceptions. Um, but but they, don't, they don't touch on that so much in the movie uh, and we're not going to get into cloning uh, uh, but like he's raised because I even had a friend of mine I've talked to several people about being adopted it's just like to me I always see the movies where they go out and find their father or their mother because they want to know and I'm like doesn't it bother you and most of them that they say they're like I don't know any difference because even if I'm not blood these were the people that raised me. These are my parents. I could meet them and they could be great people or they could be bad people, but they're not the people that raised me. Those are my parents. And fuck if Kevin Costner didn't do a great job in that film as Paul Kent because so many people were bothered by the fact there's the line where he says, Dad, what would you have me do? Would you have me let them drown? And he says, maybe. And they show this in the trailer and that's a dark fucking thought.
especially for Superman. And that's what people don't get about this character, is that yes, he's faster than a speeding bullet, and he's stronger than a locomotive, and can leap tall buildings in a single bound, but he has problems that we can never comprehend. And they say, well, what's the big deal? He, nothing can penetrate his skin except for kryptonite, and they hadn't found that at that point in the film. <laughs> Sorry, a fanboy, you gotta look at it two different ways in this film. And so, it's just like, they didn't, History has shown that things that are different are bad, especially science fiction. He didn't want to turn his son into some sort of Frankenstein monster. Because you see when you watch this movie, and you can even get it from the trailer, that everyone panics, that the government assembles and brings him in. And Lois Lane, Lois Lane has a great bit with him in the film where he comes in in handcuffs and she's like, she's like, you let them handcuff you? He's like, it seemed to make them feel more comfortable. <laughs> And I just watch a father that has so much passion for his son that cares, and it's because he cares about his son. It's not that he doesn't give a shit about any of these other kids. It's that that's what a father does, is that even if they feel like they're the most indestructible being in the universe, and my father can make me feel that way, he still knows that you're scared, and he still somehow gets that you go through what you go through and he makes it feel a little bit better. And the first thing I did today on Father's Day is I called my dad. And nothing special, there was no, there's nothing you fucking put on a Hallmark card that was said. It was just nice to talk to my father, especially after watching that movie, because my father, like Pa Kent, has always been there for me. And that's why I love him. Happy Father's Day, guys. Thanks, sir. I, yeah, I, I forgot to mention that we should pay some service to the fact that this is Father's Day, so happy Father's Day if there are any parents in the audience or expecting parents or... I mean, I'm sure... <laughs> at least some of us will be parents one day. Uh, I do want to say that I, I really like Man of Steel, too, and this is coming from... Chris Geiger will tell you, a big Superman fan. Uh, no, my brother's in it, too. Right? When, when I was at, uh, in Connecticut, my brother was like, I wonder how your friend who comments on all your posts about Superman. <laughs> well, I like to meet Eric, and he's like, yeah, that guy, that guy who likes Superman. <laughs> So I've earned my reputation. Uh, I really like Man of Steel, but my favorite part of the movie were was the scenes with Clark's parents. Uh, we, as yeah. Chris and Kevin said, we are watching the Donner movie for a thing with Loot Drop, and I don't. I liked it the better the second time I saw it. I didn't really like the movie before, and I, I it's paced terribly, mm -hmm. and there's not enough of the parents in that movie. You don't feel Clark's connection to his parents at all, and I'm so happy that in this movie we get to see Clark get to know his Earth parents because. I mean, if you look at Batman and Superman as the great yin and yang of superheroes, which I certainly do, Batman, he doesn't get to know his parents. Like, that's his tragedy. And I think it's crucial to Superman's character that he gets that Midwestern kind of almost nuclear family upbringing, you know? And, I, and just from a personal standpoint of someone who doesn't talk to his dad at all, it made me so happy to see that Superman, who is my hero, gets to know his dad. So I feel where you're coming from, Sawyer. Uh, we can debate Man of Steel later, but I'd say it's easily better than the Donner film. Uh, and with those contentious words, Nate Bechtel, Sawyer's roommate, recent Chicago transplant. Yes. Everyone welcome Nate. Hi, everybody. Hi, Nate. Hi, Nate. Hi, Nate. Hi, Nate. Hi, Nate.
be continuing the rad parent theme, so woo. Rad parents. Um, my parents. My parents really love our birthdays a lot. Um, for my uh, older sister's 16th birthday, they found a wallpaper that matched Belle's library, and they they covered the living room of our house with it, cleared all the thing out, and made a little library with all these princess cups. So when it came time for my 18th birthday, I was I was to myself. I was like, ah, oh, something sweet is gonna happen today. And then I woke up and the house was empty. <laughs> like, I, I didn't ever feel like I would share a moment with Molly Ringwald, but I was definitely, definitely feeling 16 candles uh, going on. Uh, so I actually just kind of went around the house for the first couple of hours of my birthday, rocking those sweatpants and uh, eating a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Uh, when I was making one of the aforementioned sandwiches, I, I heard my dad from behind me go, happy birthday. And before I could turn around or say thank you, I hear, put this blindfold on. Which is the best thing you could hear from an imposing six foot two man behind you. <laughs> um, so I did, because I'm just not going to win against my dad. Um, and then he guides me out of the house and he puts me in the car and we drive and drive for a really long time <laughs> that I'm not allowed to take this blindfold off. I'm talking 45 minute drive. And then eventually the car comes to a stop. I step outside, I smell fields, I hear birds chirping. The, the sun is just coming down on me. I'm like, nature, my oldest enemy, why did you bring me here? <laughs> and so, he guides me along this path. I hear like occasional just drops of sounds, like people saying things. I'm just like, oh, God damn it. Uh, until we come to a place where I, I obviously know he's handed me off to the nice, gentle hands of my mother, who goes, hi, Nate. Hi, Mom. What is this? And she goes, I can't tell you that, and just punches me square in the chest. <laughs> so great start. <laughs> Abduction. Physical abuse. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, until my dad comes back after about 10 minutes and he brings me over to what, when I stepped into it, it felt like a giant golf cart. And I, I guessed it was one of those gator things that they use on farms. And they drive us again for a while up until we stop about 15 minutes out. I get out of the golf cart and my dad takes off the blindfold. And there's just an empty fucking field in front of me. <laughs> and I go, what is this? And he goes, run. <laughs> Beg pardon? <laughs> See that tree? Run. Because <laughs> nothing's better than nature and running on my birthday. <laughs> I do. I get over there. And it's a tree. It's a tree. I go, Dad, what, what, is, what am I supposed to be getting here? He goes, the weapons. <laughs> <laughs> what weapons? There's not a bag of Nerf guns there? N no. Oh, shit. Run faster. <laughs> it was at this point that the sudden appearance of my friend Paul arose a few questions. One. Why did he just tackle me? <laughs> Two, why is he punching me in the chest? And three, why is he shirtless? 
So he just begins hitting me. And after a while, I guess he takes some birthday mercy on me. And my body just goes, oh, yeah, fight or flight instinct. Oh, wait, Paul? No, f- flight. Let's get out of here. <laughs> so I run along a path some more with Paul keeping a steady pace behind me. So I'm just, ugh. Uh, I was 30 pounds heavier, so it just was not fun at all. And I keep going along <laughs> until I hear, bleh, bleh. I turn around, and my friend James has this bowl of green jello mix that he just throws right into my face. <laughs> but then I finally take stock, and I go, all right, Paul's got black eyeshadow around him. James has blood around his mouth. His clothes are ripped. They're zombies. Holy shit, this is left for dead. my parents had recruited 12 of my friends and placed them along a good two miles of this farm trail and just dressed them up and placed them around there and the intent was for me to go with nerf guns and find them all and shoot them all well without nerf guns what that is then a two mile trail for my life where my friends have obviously had an open warrant to whip my ass. <laughs> I just keep going. I gotta go headlong. I gotta keep going because my friends are stronger than me or they're bigger than me. <laughs> Except for my one friend, Mary, who I love. She was dressed up as the witch from the game who everyone's familiar. The scariest fucking thing that I could see is a 90-year-old girl, a 90-pound girl sitting there crying in front of me. I just don't even want to know. So when I run past her, she tries to pull on me. And what basically she becomes is a revolving door for everyone who was behind me as we run through. And so I keep going and going until I find my friend Jordan, who is dressed up as the old man Bill from the game. And he's got pop guns. And he's shooting at them and goes, come on. And at this point... I'm, I look sunburned. I'm so red and I'm sweating so hard. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is good. This is fantastic. Fine. I don't even see my high school guidance counselor, <laughs> Mr. Pinkowitz, with a trash can in his head come down. And he throws it right in my face. <laughs> down I go. Then they just ring around me. And I just see uh, Mr. Pinkowitz goes, now you're a man. <laughs> Now, there's one last part of the story I didn't share, is that the farm was a berry farm. They, were, they, they grew fruit, and they had orchards. It was really nice. And apparently, it was a really nice location for field trips. There were dozens of tiny little children with their parents picking strawberries, having a wonderful time until the apocalypse comes running up the path and just ruins everything for them. They cried more than I did. (laughs) And that's how I turned 18. I'm glad to see you survive. Welcome to Chicago as a living person. That's love, man. Yeah, no kidding. All right, Chris Crotwell, come on up. Rocking the best here in the house for like three months straight, I think. Thanks, I'm working on it. You know, why don't I get, uh, not everybody's from Alabama, but Dwight's country music voice is going to haunt me for months. <laughs> really, like personally sort of distressing. Um, don't like it. Um, about just over three years ago, Uh, I started a journey of self-discovery and growth, and that journey was catalyzed by a great American 
uh, coming of age ritual, our ceremony of separation, divorce. And this is an apology to my ex-wife. Um, from the age, uh, from being a very small child, uh, I was let know, I was made to be aware that I was more intelligent than most people. And this is like not something I just decided was true. Uh, various institutions, agencies sanctioned to make this a thing, testing organizations, they let you know. And they sit you down in a room and they say that you're special. And then you get a separate class in public school. You get gifted class. And uh, all of that encouragement can really fuck somebody up. <laughs> it really can. And where that factors into this story is uh, I started reading Pitchfork in the sixth grade. Religiously. <laughs> like, religiously. I read those music reviews every day. Uh, and that was a point in time where I realized that the way that I felt about things and being critical about the other things that people liked could be really satisfying and interesting and give me an enormous power that not everyone had. And it's sort of a maniacal impulse at that age. And so that's the point at which I became an arbiter of taste. A gatekeeper of culture, if you will. I like the good things, goddammit, and they're better than the fucking things you like. And I know that because everyone told me I was smarter than you, so man. <laughs> So, if this sort of thing goes unchecked all the way through high school, like, what you're building is a monster, essentially. And then you, like, you start your first serious relationship. A person, a person with uh, whom you will eventually agree, like, yes, we're going to spend all of the rest of our time together, we'll be married. But you know what, like, I don't know if you know this, but bad foundations at the very, very base of a marriage, um, sneering contempt awful. Don't bring that in with you. That's cancerous. Uh, and, and the desire to educate someone about what good things are. Look, like we're nerds and one of the best things about being nerds is that there's this intersection between intelligence and passion that means that when we like things, we like them really well. We like things better than most people. But, but, and this is where I might run into a bone of contention, we do not like better things than people. So back up. We might like things better, but we don't like better things. But we think that we do. And when you come into a relationship and you meet someone, it's, I always say at this point in my life, I've learned so much, I've grown so much, because divorce is a really beautiful thing that really pushes people to become the people that they can be. I always say it's a, it's a, it's a partner, not a project. That's one I picked up. You know, I fix people, they're just people. And uh, you're not a professor, you should be a partner, so shut the fuck up and listen every once in a while. Um, I realized uh, a couple years ago, after the divorce, that being an arbiter of taste was not something I wanted to be anymore. Uh... And even though I seem like a huge asshole in the story right now, and that's sort of the point, uh, keep in mind, if I described someone whose favorite bands were Black Eyed Peas and Hoobastank, and whose favorite two TV shows were like, the favorite things on TV were E-Red Carpet Interviews and, and like, Big Bang Theory, I don't mean to be too much, but if I say, like, if I start describing this man, and I say, like, his favorite movie is Daredevil, but only the full screen version. <laughs> 
most famous Daredevil is his favorite movie. You like, you start to get antsy. And you see this person in your head and you start to judge them. Don't act like you don't. And that's a bad impulse because you don't know shit about him. Like, you don't know what he's like. We like things really well. Nerds like things really well. But when we decide that we don't like things, we are infuriating and nasty and impossible to deal with. <laughs> it is too much. Right? When it comes to like that educating thing, like you, you find somebody that you like, you enjoy, you like being around them, you enjoy their company. And then you realize that they haven't seen any of the Indiana Jones movies. <laughs> and it keeps you awake at night. Don't act like it doesn't. <laughs> But, but, like, here's a tip. Someone didn't start dating you to get an education in the things you fucking like. They don't, they don't give a shit what you like. They don't give a shit what you like. They like the things they fucking like. And one of the rudest things you can possibly say to someone is that they have bad taste. Because what you've done is you've minimized them as a person. You said the things that make them feel good don't matter. And you said that you're better. And living in a home with someone like that must be awful. Yeah. Right? That can't be good. But it's so easy to do. You know? Like, we're all arbiters of taste in our own way. Like, these things are good things. These things are bad things. Too easily, we'll take the sum of a person's likes and dislikes and try to jump up a picture of who they are in our heads. And that's not how it works. It doesn't really matter. The things that you like aren't better than things that other people like. And another thing that being an arbiter of taste does that's really awful for you is that it means the things you like end up in this bubble that just gets pushed around by what other people choose to like because you have the desire to be exceptional. It's about what you don't like, not what you do. It's an attitude specifically based on negativity. And when you let that negativity start to eat you up and you let it like that be the guiding force between the way that you deal with people, that sort of sneering contempt for the things that people enjoy, we do that pretty well too sometimes. And I know that I did it a lot. And I feel awful for that. Um, so, uh, in that spirit, Becky, you'll probably never hear this but. Um, though I have philosophical issues with it, it's fine to like what not to wear. It's fine. <laughs> That's totally fine. Clinton and Stacy are engaging, and I sort of like them too. <laughs> it's fine. Another thing that being so snooty will do to you is that you won't like things that you think you like. Like, you like things, but you're guilty about it. You're not allowed to like the things you want to like because they're not good things. So you feel bad about, like, That's stupid. To Becky, look. I might never like Christian Rock, and Reliant K is just not my bag, but I was such an asshole about that, and I'm super <laughs> sorry. That was, like, totally off base. I did not, I shouldn't have been so, so critical. Um, Blue's Clues wasn't written for your demographic, necessarily, but it has a pleasant aesthetic, and I understand why you like it. And it's fine. Like, it's fine. And, and things like things that I wanted you I, things that I wanted to make you like like it doesn't matter that you never wanted to watch Indiana Jones it doesn't make you a worse person it's just you know it's disappointing but whatever I shouldn't have been so shitty about it that's the that's the story and all the other things the bands I tried to force on you the like 
how infuriating it must have been to have someone acting like they needed to tutor you in how to like things. Like, what a miserable way to have to be around a person all the time. I'm sorry. And, guys, we're really prone to doing that as a group of people. Try not to take that in your life with anybody. Let them like what they like. Like what you like. Don't push yourself on someone because that's not what they're fucking there for you assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chris. I think that's really true. I mean, it, it is hard for people who consider themselves to have refined taste to, like, back off that. And Pitchfork is certainly the worst of the worst. I still read it. I mean, they, they have good stopped. insight. I'm not going to say I don't read it. They did get born to run a 10.0, so for that, they get 10.0. <laughs> uh, Nerdalog's own Andrew Bentley. So I originally, I was writing something else for this, uh, and then my computer broke. Um, just completely failed, uh, but, you know, as the, the Lord giveth, yes. or taking away the, uh, the light. Um, but, uh, so while I was looking for my Windows license, uh, tearing through everything in my room and in my closet, uh, I stumbled on a box that actually moved up with me from Virginia to Chicago to my first place and over to my new place without me ever opening it. Um, and I, yeah, exactly. And I looked inside and among everything else, I found everything I wrote in elementary school. Um, so I haven't looked at any of this since elementary school. Uh, and I thought tonight I would take one of these and we would walk through it together. <laughs> This one is from fifth grade. Uh, if I could take everyone back 15 years. Uh, so yeah, that was, yeah, that was the last time I looked at this. Um, I believe this is my take slash shameless ripoff of the Trojan War. Um, labeled the Eritrean War, or titled the Eritrean War by Andrew Bentley. Uh, cover picture by Kid Picks. And uh, there are there are illustrations in here. I don't. I'm not sure anyone here has met my friend Chris Rory's from back in Virginia. Oh, back he does. But uh, so I went to high school with him, or uh, no, I went to elementary school with him. Um, and he was a much more talented artist than I was. So I believe, yeah, I commissioned him <laughs> to do the illustrations for this. They're in pencil, so they may not be visible to everyone. Um, I'll leave this up here on a stool if I almost like take a look. At okay. <clears throat> Here it goes. The Eritrean War. <laughs> Domenchus, general of the Eritrean Legion, sat at his table in the grandest tent. Mm -hmm. For 12 weeks, they had been besieging the city... C-H-I-E-S. Um, oh. I'm going to say Kis? Kis. They'd be <laughs> besieging the city Kis, but to no avail. I don't suppose you have any idea about a tactic... He asked his lieutenant, tell us. <laughs> well, we could build a wooden horse and... Oh, silence, roared the man. <laughs> You're the 57th person to suggest that. <laughs> okay, so apparently I do have some sense of irony about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sorry, sir, gulped, tell us. 
Just then, a muscular man wearing armor with jet black hair and a mustache walked in. <laughs> oh my. Uh, <laughs> Demancus recognized the man as Silenus. Silenus was the son of Ares and a mortal woman. When young, he had been attacked by a creature called an Opaxi. It had the head of an elephant, the upper body and arms of an alpaca, and the legs of a chimpanzee. You see, you see it's a subtle portmanteau. Uh, the beast had pounded his chest in, and then left him for dead and clambered away. Uh, this is a picture, I guess, of a dude. Uh, Ares had swooped down and taken him to Hephaestus, the smith god, whom he begged to make Silenus a bronze chest that would grow with him. Hephaestus did, and Silenus had it to this very day. <laughs> now, now he was in Kis, the Opaxi capital of the world. <laughs> Bad choice. <laughs> uh, sir, reported Silenus, <laughs> there's a herd of Opaxis charging towards the camp. <laughs> It is suspected that Kesian stirred them up. <laughs> then go stop them, Demeca said. <laughs> Bring Toron, Zeno, and Nicias as well. All right, conceded Silenus. <laughs> Paragraph break. Sidria moved towards the Eritrean camp to set the prisoners free. She heard crashing in the forest, but before she could move, four men came hiking through the trees. One of them yelled, A spy! Zeno, take her back to camp! Oh, this is an alpaxi. Sidria <laughs> <laughs> uh, recognized two of the men. The lanky man with brown hair and stubble was Colonel Toron, and the other was General Silenus. The, the ancient Greeks apparently use modern military ranking systems. <laughs> they, as she was forced through the fo okay, so she was captured. As she was forced through the foliage, she began to think of a plan. Three sets of ellipses. Zeno uh, yeah. uh, was back with the other three now, and all four of them were crouched in the trees. Hearing the sounds of hooves on dirt, the party readied their weapons. When the herd passed by, Zeno launched an arrow which lodged itself in the neck of one of the beasts, which fell in its path, spurting blood. This, however, alerted the other beasts to the location of the men. One of them lumbered over to the tree where the men were and grabbed Zeno in its trunk. As Zeno screamed, the alpaxi squeezed harder and harder, <laughs> until finally Zeno's head could not stand the pressure and exploded in the gushing blood. <laughs> so, yeah. This is, I think, an alpaxi getting speared in the neck. <laughs> yeah. uh, the beast tossed the carcass away like a sack of garbage and began to run with the rest. Sil oh, so he just left him. Okay. <laughs> Silenus, Toron, and Nicias jumped down and pursued the herd of alpaxi. They raced ahead of the herd and crossed a stone slab that served as a bridge across a canyon a hundred feet down. When the herd got onto the slab, all three of them pushed, sliding one edge of the stone over the edge, causing the herd to fall and smash and impale on the rocks below. Well, Toron grinned, that settles that. <laughs> <laughs> the lookouts in the tower okay, okay, so scene change here. The lookouts in the tower <laughs> scanned the nighttime horizon. One of them shivered as the bitter cold of the night seemed to pierce his tunic. Uh, and my teacher has put like a check mark here indicating, I guess, that that was well phrased. <laughs> Abruptly, he heard the sound of marching feet, and which he can distinguish from hooves on ground, by the way. <laughs> the, uh, and the creaking and groaning and the sound of wheels moving across dirt. 
In the name of Zeus, what is that? Cut off. He was cut off as a burning ball of rock hurled out of the sky and crashed at the base of the tower, instantly surrounding it with flames. Flames licked up at the other man's legs as he grabbed his sword and rushed... Okay, I've consistently spelled sword S-W-O-A-R-D. <laughs> and, and rushed out right into a man with a raised battle axe. Oh, this is, I believe, the explosion here. Oh. I think it's been amplified for dramatic effect. Uh... Right into the man with the raised battle axe. The Akesian stabbed his sword through him and leapt across the body to receive a blow from another battle axe across the face, neck, and shoulder. Uh, the soldier touched a torch to the body, engulfing it in flames, which seems like overkill. <laughs> the other Akesian panicked and dropped his torch in a barrel of oil. Okay, first of all, here's a dude getting face hacked. <laughs> and then... Kaboom! And I decided it was necessary to use two full lines of <laughs> and follow up with four exclamation points. The most dramatic number of exclamation points. Uh, the man was thrown from a newly formed skylight. Yeah, was thrown from a newly formed skylight and fell to earth a burning lump of bone and roast flesh. Seeing their job done, the strike force moved away. The strike force brought a catapult, I guess. Is. Cydria, seeing her guard finally doze off, reached through the bars and grabbed his keys. Okay. Uh, the other prisoner silently cheered as she unlocked the door, uh, drew her knife, and pressed it against the guard's throat. She ignored the gurgling noises and the blood bubbles coming from the guard's throat and removed his armor. She then donned it, and she and the other slaves... Rush oh, their slaves now, not prisoners. Rushed off into the night. Very efficiently done, you have to admit. Uh, the next morning, Domenkis found the empty cell and dead guard. He was so enraged you could practically see the steam bellowing from his ears. Okay, and here he is with steam bellowing from his ears. And, and Chris has made the decision that he's, he's so angry he's actually hovering a few feet off the ground with little motion lines to indicate how angry he is. His face was bent in a frown as he approached Nicias. There is a girl in the forest. She has escaped the prison and killed a guard. She may be wearing Eritrean armor. Kill her anyway. If you do, you will receive a nice reward. Yes, sir, Nicias grinned. See, I think the Greeks are actually supposed to be heroes in this, but not so much. <laughs> Uh, Cydria had removed the heavy armor, but when she heard a crashing, she donned the armor and drew the sword. Suddenly, Nicias rushed out of the book. I'm not sure why I felt the need that she to have her take off the armor and put it back on. <laughs> but, uh, suddenly, Nicias rushed out of the bushes, his sword held high, and chopped down Cydria. Or rather, where she had been. Cydria had dodged the blade, backed into the forest in the direction of the former stone bridge. Former stone bridge. Uh, Nicias found her there and jabbed at her, but she twirled, backing him up on the cliff. I surrender, he yelled as he threw his weapon down at his feet. Cydria dropped her weapon too, then kicked Nicias in the upper groin. <coughs> Nicias bent over and lost his balance. Screaming, he fell end over end until he joined the Opaxi at the bottom of the canyon. <laughs> Cydria picked up the weapons and moved back into the... Cydria is cold as motherfucking ice. <laughs> And here she is, booting this poor guy. Uh, uh, the unarmed man who had surrendered. <laughs> Back at the camp, a great hubbub was going up. Akesian had come to offer his services. 
Demachus had constructed a plan which was sure to fell Kis. That night, the Kisian, named Ikos, led Demachus, Toron, Silenus, and Tellus, covered by his shrouds and on horseback, to the gates of Kis. Halt! Who goes there? asked the guard. This is a man on horseback outside the gates of Kis. <laughs> Uh, the Greeks are getting careless. It's Ikos. I found only one guard protecting the prisoner whom I knocked out. These are the prisoners. It actually was that easy to rescue the prisoners earlier, so he's not really lying there. <laughs> uh, Ikos announced, Telus whispered to Demachus, are you sure he can be trusted? Uh, he's not stupid, Demachus said. He knows that sooner or later we're going to beat the Kesians. He wants to be on our side when we do. Demachus laughed to himself and trotted his horse into the opening gate. Uh, it was a boring night for the guards, at least until they were suddenly attacked and killed. <laughs> Which would liven things up considerably. Uh, their bodies were then thrown over the wall. Toron and Telus opened the gates, and soon the Eritrean army surged into the city. Most never knew their... Uh-oh, a page has come off here. Okay, here we go. Uh, <laughs> most never knew they were being attacked until they were staring at an Eritrean soldier or their house was on fire. <laughs> Here are some houses on fire. Uh, only the old were spared, for Demachus' father had been killed in a raid at the age of 50, and he had pity on them. <laughs> After a while, the fires went down, and those still alive were told they were free to go to Greece with them and live. Which... Okay, fine. And so, as an Eritrean fleet sail... Okay, I'm switching tense. And so, as an Eritrean fleet sails into the night, our story ends. Or does it? <laughs> Sidre... Oh, this is so bad. Okay. Sidria uh, escaped on a boat to Greece and ended up marrying Toron. Strong female character. <laughs> Uh, on the voyage home, Telus was dragged underwater by a scaly amphibian creature which climbed aboard the ship. <laughs> Demachus and Silenus continued their career in the army, and Icos was given a reward for helping the Greeks. End of story. After that, rather, clearly I hit whatever the page requirement was for the story for class, and I was like, epilogue, done. Uh, oh, and uh, I guess Chris was not available to do the last page drawing, so instead, I have drawn it. Um, I believe this is supposed to be some sort of like mansion, <laughs> and this misshapen lump of flesh at the bottom, I think I think Icos uh, relaxing in some sort of swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you very much. Andrew, that was that was magical. Thank you. Are you sure you want that to go on the podcast? Like, what if some Hollywood producer is like, oh man, snaps that right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You gotta be careful with intellectual property. So tonight we played indie songs. We played songs about freedom. This is kind of both. You guys will know both of this. Yeah. All right, you got you guys on the list. Uh, one, two, three, four. Sometimes that's okay I ran my 
guys. The Nerdalogs present Your Stories is sponsored by the Chicago sketch comedy troupe The Nerdalogs and is recorded the third Sunday of every month at the Public House Theater, 3914 North Clark Street in Chicago. The stories you heard have been prepared and presented by the speakers on a volunteer basis. Special thanks to Sean Patrick Boyle for his help with recording. Our theme song comes from the band Stage Shirt. For more information on The Nerdalogs, Your Stories, and everything else, go to www.nerdalogs.com. <laughs>